Welcome to Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. My name is Matt Miller. I'm Matt Henry. And today we begin Systematic Theology 3. You should have a drum roll or nice. something or trumpets blowing. Do, do, do. should. Yeah, we should. But we won't. Well, maybe we can get them to uh, insert a little uh, electronic one. Yeah, it wasn't, didn't I find out that Mark beeped out our secret location? Because we actually used where we were at and he beeped it out? Yeah. Yeah. He beeped out. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if he'll beep this one out. Well, that was my test. I'll see if he, uh, how consistent he is. All right. All right. So we're doing Doctrine of uh, Holy Spirit to kick off Theology 3. And so let us uh, just begin here by saying, uh, the focus of systematic theology three is um, there's three parts to it. Uh, there's pneumatology, which is doctrine of the spirit, ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church, and eschatology, which is doctrine of last things. And so today we begin with this first one, the Holy Spirit. Um, now we're we're ripping this off from theology syllabi that we've written, um, so this will kind of teach that way. So bear with us. Um, so it begin, begins with the goals of systematic theology three. So let me just lay out some of those. First, um, it's to understand practical implications of these three separate doctrines for the life and ministry of any Christian. Um, we would say a goal of systematic theology three is to develop uh, a framework and skills to evaluate major opposing non-evangelical positions. And I would say now even evangelical positions. Because they're all over the place. I don't even know what an evangelical looks like anymore. Right. I'm just about ready to say, are you a Christian? But that's for another day. <laughs> um, evangelifish, right? Yeah. That's not, um, I don't know who invented that. but Sounds like a Wilson. Actually, I, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Doug Wilson. Well, anyway, um, so we're in a mood because we're at, right after this, we're going to uh, tape the Critical Race series. Yeah. So we kind of got a bad attitude. Yep. Because again, we're under protest doing those. Anyway, uh, so again, one of the major goals of theology is it does help you establish a framework for when new w- waves and winds of thoughts and teachings come through. You're able to filter the accuracy and the truth of those. And there is literally no end to that. Right. And so that's why we do this. Um, with regard to the spirit, and with all of these, uh, the spirit, the church, and uh, eschatology, there's various positions even within what we'll just call now classic evangelicalism. Um, but there's also many outside of evangelicalism. And since many, not many people are aware of what those are, they're also unaware in huge ways when those outside positions begin to influence an evangelical position. Um, so, for instance, the, the influence of Eastern Orthodoxy or the Catholic contemplative movement on how Christians relate and interact with God, uh, specifically the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's, a, that's many of the books that are being published now by what used to be reliable publishers are dripping with 
this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's it's we we didn't really know anything about Eastern Orthodoxy until we ended up in Serbia, yeah. and I was in Romania too, and that's where you well, and, and in Greece. Greece yeah, so I mean, all of a sudden now you're you're confronted with a world that you didn't even know existed, um, but it once once you get into it, then you realize how much. Uh, evangelicalism is drinking from that fountain, and they think it's some deep, greater, closer, intimate right. communion with God, but it's not. Same thing with the classic uh, Catholic mystics. Oh, yeah. John, uh, or Mer Thomas Merton, John Merton, yep. whatever his name is. Yeah. Um, guys like that. Um, so we want to use this as an opportunity to hopefully help encourage you to be able to analyze contemporary issues that are confronting the church and society. Um, to remind, re rely more consistently on the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll see that with pneumatology. To serve more wisely and rightfully in your local church, ecclesiology, and to hope more soundly on God's future work in your life and in this world, which is uh, eschatology. The whole point of which being hope. That's why, uh, that's the purpose of eschatology. So, so that's our goal with these next episodes, Lord willing, in Systematic Theology 3. Uh, all systematic theology is practical, we would argue, but systematic theology three is the most hands-on, if you will, because it deals with, you know, the dynamics of everyday issues in the life of the church and the life of the Christian. So, and they're probably some of the most controversial. We're, we're now delving into the three most controversial areas for most people because you're going to be touching, or will be touching on the gifts of the Spirit, right? Right, and. Church government. And, right. Well, or how to even understand the word in the sense of what does it mean when the, we feel the Spirit gave us a word of knowledge with, with regard to this text. But then you get into the church. Yeah. When did church begin? Baptism, church leadership. The use of Lord's Supper. Church discipline. There's just a host of things going on there. Well, and now in the social justice movement, what's the mission of the church? Is it? Right. Part of it, social justice, and then eschatology. Well, that's where the spears come out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So with that, um, how about you kick us off here a little bit on the introduction? Oh, you're going to give me the etymology. Thanks, man. Well, I, you know. So yeah. pneumatology, it comes from pneuma, spirit, wind, breath. That's what it means, our logos, which is the word or study. And so it simply is the study of the spirit. If you didn't know all of these, that's why they have the ology at the end. It's a study of whatever Right. It's talking about. And so uh, by way of reminder, the systematic theology world is usually um, traditionally broken into three units. Um, my seminary does four. Does yours? Did they do four uh, when you were there? No. So they've switched that. Yeah, yeah. and I'm not sure. I think, I think the reason why is eschatology was not as hard taught um, as now, and now they've got some guys in there like Michael Vlock, who are, they really have done a lot of hands-on work. And so I think that that's why is that they break it um, so that they can deal with probably Christology and pneumatology together. I'm actually not sure how they break it down. I know the fourth one is uh, ecclesiology and eschatology. So pneumatology gets stuck in there with something. I'm okay. not sure what. Anyhow, it's normally three. You guys don't care. They're already like, <laughs> don't care. fast forward, fast yeah. forward. Um, anyhow, theology one is theology proper. Um, it's the person and attributes of God in general. That's where you get into Trinity and stuff like that. Theology two is the person of and the work of, the, of Christ. And as a result, we also throw in 
the doctor man and sin and salvation. Uh, and salvation because they're all tightly connected. And then theology three is the person work of the spirit. So you see that triune yeah. um, relationship there as well and how all three of the, uh, the persons of the Trinity kind of factor in when we're thinking. Um, so we have, oh boy, I'm going to have a, my tongue and lips <laughs> don't say these words very good. Pneumatological prolegomena. Bam, you nailed it. All right. Um, in other words, what goes beforehand? What is it that we're going to, the words beforehand that we're going to speak re, re, related to the Holy Spirit? Right. Um, the, if you guys haven't figured out, the doctrine of the Spirit is often debated. It's, it's a confusing topic. Um, but it's only confusing, like most things, it's only confusing because one of the things we have a hard time doing is just telling a person you're wrong. You know, it's like your new idea that you just came up with is um, not a good idea and shush. But we, we feel like we have to treat everything with equal respect, even though there's no reason for it. Um, and so the end result is that we're vague and we're trying to be inclusive. And all we really do is confuse our people. No, you're just an oppressor. That's all it is. Oh. You oppress people with your theology and... You don't want them to have a fair voice. Yeah, well, then I, I guess I am in tough noogies. <laughs> um, that's a theological term, noogies. <laughs> noogies. Noogies. Anyhow, um, pneumatology is really a relatively straightforward doctrine, actually. It's not that complex. It's only made confusing and emotional because you have so many traditions. Most of them are very new and contemporary. Um, and and then also presuppositions that we in, inevitably bring into the game that confuses people. Typical, the typical Christian though is not even aware of those presuppositions. Uh, they're simply raised in a tradition or a church culture, and so every uh, everyone presumes that their experience is normative and correct. And so when we read certain passages on the Spirit uh, and hear someone make a certain uh, statement about the Holy Spirit, we, we are compelled to interpret these things through that preformed or pre, presupposition. Yeah. Um, so tradition and upbringing are very powerful and actually very unhelpful oftentimes forces that all of us should be aware of. And beyond that, it's undeniable that every single person has a presupposition. It's not necessarily bad to have a presupposition. Oh. Um, but the presupposition that you're bringing always has to be subjected to the Word of God. Um, and we find the opposite to be true. Uh, really, presuppositions and experience are the two enemies to good thinking oftentimes. Because in tradition. Yeah, you can't tell me I'm not speaking in tongues because I, I'm speaking in tongues. It's like you can call it whatever you want, but it's not tongues because it's not a foreign language. Yeah. And don't tell me it's a tongue of angels until I meet an angel. Then I'll come back in heaven and say, sorry, you were right. But, you know, I'm ranting now, aren't I? All right. So in light of that, <laughs> let's give you our presuppositions as we approach the doctrine of the Spirit, but also our doctrine of the church in less things. Yeah, so it'll be a presupposition for systematic theology three in general, which has also been our presupposition for ST1 and 2. Yeah. Which we've covered. It's not like we're coming up with a new one. Yeah. And we, I think we've been, for whatever they want to say, people may say about what we, we taught, we've been honest. It's not like we're trying to sneak something in. We're, yeah. And we, we've laid out, this is where we're coming from. Here's how we're approaching it. And, you know, go from there. Yeah. 
I agree. Um, so let, let us give you our presupposition. Um, it is in accordance with the reformational principle of sola scriptura, um, which is the scriptures alone. So, so since scripture, we would say, is that sole possessor of divine authority, it is therefore necessary, uh, necessarily the only source in our formulation of this doctrine. Um, so in other words, what does that eliminate if we're saying sola scripture or scripture alone? Well, first that eliminates traditions. Um, that is what has been said, what has been taught or what has been held in history. It's not that we reject them. Absolutely not. But it does not, it does not, become but they don't hold authority. Exactly. Um, as to what's true or untrue. Um, it also, that eliminates experience, uh, that is both personal experience and corporate experience, what your church has experienced. Uh, it also eliminates appeals to authority, that is scholars or pastors or Bible teachers. Um, so it's not that any, again, that any of those things are wrong. They're just not what we can look to as authoritative when establishing a proper understanding of what is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Here, here's a case in point, um, Reform Pub. Uh, a person recently said something about baptism, just a, a question about baptism, and, and everyone piled on because uh, it was against infant baptism. And immediately what got invoked was, here's what the Westminster Catechism says, It's like, or confession says. says what do you care what the, that says? I mean, that's, that's a tradition. Um, why don't you just go to the text? And then I actually threw in, have you actually looked up those verses that, <laughs> that they have there that somehow prove uh, the point, um, and and none of them do, but it doesn't matter because my tradition says this. Then somebody else invoked, you know what? I think that what R.C. Sproul said is is necessary. It's like I don't care what R.C. Sproul. Not what was alarming to me was a large number of people piling on the guy, but none of them were appealing to just look at the biblical text and show it. And his question was actually framed from the biblical text. If this is what we see then why in the scripture, why, why do we do that? Right. And I thought there, there it is. And that's why, that's why we end up being at loggerheads and we're never going to be able to move forward in, in certain circles because we're appealing to different levels of authority. Would yeah. you agree with that? hundred percent. All right. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't do expositions of the confessions or the creeds. We do expositions of the only authority, which is scripture alone. And again, that shows you our tradition. <laughs> yeah. We're not Presbyterian. We're Baptists. Um, and we're not 1689 Baptists who right. just ba basically took the Westminster Confession and baptized it. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever read through the whole thing? Yeah. It's almost word for word, the Westminster Confession. Yeah. I tried to write, do it for our church, for the youth group to learn it. I thought it would be a useful tool, but I, I realized I was going to have to change some stuff because it's also covenant theology through and through. And by the time I was finished revising it, it was no longer the best. And I'm like, forget it. it yeah. I can't. I, you know what? It's 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 born out of covenant theology. So if right. you buy into covenant theology, you think this is the slickest thing. But if you don't buy into covenant theology, you're stumbling right and left. Yeah. So. Well, with all that said, then, our only source of authority, if it's not um, clear, <laughs> is the scriptures alone. Um, so, so any conclusion on the person, the nature, the work of the Holy Spirit must be developed from the text of the scripture alone. So if, if you don't like or agree with something that we're going to say, that's fine. 
but take us to task on the texts that we're using, um, not appealing to traditions uh, or authority figures or an experience. Um, now, in all this, we might give some historical views on various issues related to the Holy Spirit, um, but what you won't find us doing is using them um, as any source of authoritative document or truth right. or anything like that. They, they bear no authority for developing an accurate understanding of the Holy Spirit. So with that, you want to give us some some of the important points of sure. pneumatology, why right. even talk about this? So first of all, the, the uh, a proper understanding of the Holy Spirit's necessary because God's work today is actually primarily through the Spirit. Uh, and I think a lot of people don't recognize that yeah. as, as they ought. Um, the most prominent member, in fact, of the Trinity is the person of the Holy Spirit uh, for, for our time especially. But this is very true in the church, both the local church and the universal church, but it's true in the world. Our primary interaction with God is going to, or the Trinity. Would, when you talk about that, do you mean the Trinity or do you mean Trinity. the yes. Father? Okay, the, the, our primary interaction then with the triune God is via the Holy Spirit. Why? Well, you have... How do you actually come into a relationship and connection to him? It's through regeneration by the Spirit in John 3, right? Uh, we pray uh, through the Spirit in Romans 8. We have these gifts given to us that we function within the church in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. All areas of sanctification, whether it be personal or corporate, such as what Ephesians 4 says, these are just examples of how the Spirit is quietly at work. So we say he's prominent, the most prominent, but he's also the most quiet about it. Right. Um, he just is kind of doing his work. Um, and yet none of us, none of us as a Christian could function without his presence and grace in our life. So additionally to that, a proper understanding of the Spirit is vital to grasping both the depth, depth and significance of our salvation. Uh, a proper pneumatology gives understanding, but it also brings clarity to the nature of our relationship, both to God and also to one another. And we, we have some passages we're attaching here that you can see in the show notes. Um, the Holy Spirit is integral to the process of sanctification, uh, becoming more like God or Christ, like however you want to word that, to orienting ourselves toward God and toward his will. A proper understanding of the Holy Spirit is also necessary in grasping a deeper understanding of the Word of God, as well as developing better skills with the Word of God. So in 2 Timothy 2.16, we, we know that the Spirit is the divine author of God's Word. But in 1 Corinthians 2.15, he's also the illuminator. So he's the one who is the divine illuminator. So not only does he grant us or give us the word, but then he allows us and opens our eyes to understand and see it. Um, so we will develop all that later, but the spirit is central to anything related to the word of God. And I think your sermons that you did in Luke were some of the best on really trying to show how utterly central the spirit is in all of this. Yeah. Um, really good stuff there. Um, where did you start, where you started working with the spirit? Was it in? No, that was, that was, that chapter was, four or earlier? Oh, that. Well, which ones are you, are you talking about when I did that four-part series? I think it was a four-part series, but you were weaving the spirit into You know what, guys? If you want to hear some good sermons on Luke, how about this? Start with Matt Miller's at missiodayfellowship.org in his chapter one on Luke. He's just, he's really showing a lot of good stuff there about our Lord. Um, and I think you'll walk away blessed. How about that? I'll give you a, a thumbs up. 
Um, so we're all of that is what, however you relate yourself to the word, the spirit's present and at work. So the word is the word of the spirit and the word is the spirit of the word. There's such a tight connection that it's vital to grasp. If you have a low view of the word, then functionally what you actually have is a low view of the spirit. I don't think most people grasp that. Yeah. Uh, and if you have a low view of the spirit, then inevitably you're going to have a low view functionally of the word. Yeah. Yep. You got it. Um, now, Well, that's important because we can often be accused of downplaying the Spirit or something like that. You know, our our Holy Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Bible. Um, But what we're arguing for here is there's such a tight connection between the Word of God and the Spirit. Um, So we're not just all about the Bible and not about the Spirit, but we're certainly not— You can't separate them. Yeah, we're not all about the Spirit, but you—and then not have the Bible. In fact, people make—that's a false— um, dichotomy. Dichotomy there. Yeah, you, you can't do that. You're actually putting the word as opposed to the spirit and saying one is more important. And it's like, you don't, both sides are wrong once they do that because you can't, you cannot separate the word from the spirit and the spirit from his, his word. They're one and the same in, right. in a sense. Yeah. Now, what is obvious to anyone who's been around church for any length of time is that there is a massive divide in the church's pneumatology, both in doctrine, that is what we understand about the spirit, but also in experience, that is what we experience dynamically with the Holy Spirit. Um, so not only is there confusion, but we would argue there, there's division, which ironically is the exact opposite of what the spirit seeks to do. According to Ephesians chapter four, um, he is the spirit of unity and, and so I would argue that no doubt this is one of those great schemes of Satan that the scripture talks much about. Sure. Um, where he says, you know, we are we are not unaware of his schemes. And in the context, what is that? Well, it's factions and division. Um, so with that, though, what is this deba- debate involved regarding the spirit? Well, the debate involves the language of, and it, it's kind of clumsy to say, but the language of baptism of, in, with, and by the Holy Spirit. Um, the operation of the spiritual gifts is a major dividing point. Um, and these are the two major issues of, of division. And so below are what the various views espouse on these two issues of disagreement. And so now we're going to talk about these, um, and just show you where this divide has taken place primarily within what's understood to be evangelicalism. So is that my turn now? You want to go over this so first one? So you're going to finally start smoking this cigar that was left over from last week? I think it's gone out again. I'm worried about it. Well. All right, folks, I'm going to do some talking because he needs to do some puffing. I'm just letting you guys know that. That's why you hear my voice here, because I'm ministering to him in this cigar. Yeah, what a servant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once again, they're fast forward, fast forward. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, you okay. go, go, go give us so this first So let one me here. talk about the Pentecostal Charismatics, because why not? Um, their view of the Spirit. Uh, believe They believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you'll hear this a lot. It's a secondary, though. This is the key. It's a secondary blessing that's subsequent to the conversion experience. Uh, this could happen in seconds, minutes, hours after conversion, or decades after conversion. Um, this blessing is necessarily accompanied by speaking in tongues, um, and it's the significant manifestation of the powerful presence of the Spirit. 
Uh, this is why usually there's a push right away to get a person to start speaking in tongues. In fact, uh, they want the person to experience a second blessing because that's where the empowerment kind of goes in. And I just remember a guy uh, at our church who he, he attended a local private school run by the Assemblies of God. And he said that in chapel, they were they just said, you know what, we're all going to just pray in tongues. And he didn't do that. And so he actually had a teacher uh, grab him and grab his mouth and squeeze it together and just say, start saying la, 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 over and over again. And he says, and, and believe that the Spirit will fall upon you and you'll have it. And he just kept on doing it just to keep the teacher from touching him anymore. <laughs> but what was interesting with the whole thing was the goal of it was that all of these students were now speaking in tongues. Therefore, they were filled with the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit. They had this second blessing that empowered them. And he says, but I knew them all, and most of them weren't even Christians. And yet they were functioning like that. And, and I remember saying the same thing to a, a guy who was going to a local, much more charismatic church. And he, he came to me with a bunch of other guys after a Bible study. He's like, so we just want to talk about porn and how do we get free from porn and and this, and I, I was already getting tired of their charismatic pushes because they kept on pushing that hard on me and like I was missing something. And yet they're sitting here tasking me, okay, yeah, but we all are hooked on porn. So I looked and I said, well, I thought that you uh, spoke in tongues. Yeah, I thought you'd been baptized with spirit. Yeah. I said, then according to your theology, you should be free from all of it. I said, so now what you got to do is figure out what's wrong with your theology that you can say that you now have the power of victory through the spirit. And yet, obviously you don't. I said, once you figure that, come back and talk. And it got really quiet there, but I was just like tired of dealing with them. Yeah. I'm not a nice guy. Anyhow. That's, that's, your, that's your oppression coming out again. Yeah, that, yeah, that bad attitude is what it is. But, but that's the idea is that you, you, you're not living the victorious life that you could live what you need is a second blessing. So a summary of the position, God works powerfully through the Holy Spirit at conversion. He brings conviction of sin, awareness of the need for salvation, justifies, etc. But then there can be the second subsequent blessing accompanied by the speaking in tongues. Now, additional to that, this position tends to believe in the full operation and manifestation of all the offices and the more, quote unquote, miraculous gifts um, so you have the offices now of the apostles and prophets, the gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, words of knowledge, word of wisdom, healings, miracles, exorcisms. Uh, so these are all realities of that Pentecostal charismatic. What about the yeah. non-Pentecostal guys? Yeah, so non-Pentecostals or non-charismatics. Again, the debate is over this language of baptism in why, uh, with, by, or of the Holy Spirit, and then also what we do with gifts. So here's where now this position will differ with all the ones that you just said. Um, this position believes that baptism of the Holy Spirit is a mighty act of God whereby Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And we covered a lot of that in our previous episodes on this, I don't know, a year ago or so. Um, now, baptism of the Holy Spirit, this is an act which Jesus himself performs. Uh, this happens contemporaneously to and at the moment of conversion. This is not an experience, and we argued for that, um, as much as it's simply a reality of what takes place. It is an objective fact. Um, so just a summary of that, in addition to justification, adoption, regeneration, union with Christ, which again, all happens at the moment of salvation. It's a contemporaneous reality. 
there is another blessing which takes place, and that is this Jesus baptizing us with the Holy Spirit. That is also one of those objective things that takes place. So he is like in a physical baptism, he's like the water. The Spirit is. Yeah. Correct. And Jesus would be like the pastor. Or yeah, whoever's or administering doing the baptism. baptism. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this, this group tape typically believes that speaking in tongues is at best peer pressure. And then in its worst or at worst, in the worst kinds of cases, it's actually demonic. Um, believing the miraculous sign gifts were distinct and refer, uh, reserved for the apostle or the apostolic period is also something that this position holds to. So all those miraculous gifts and signs that you mentioned earlier, prophecy, speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, healing, miracles, and exorcisms. What does the cessationist believe? Wow, you just handed that right off to me. Well, All right. So they then we're talking in broad categories here. So again, you might say, well, that's not me and I'm a cessationist. Deal with it. I mean, we're, we're talking broad categories, but they tend to believe that the purpose of miracles um, as witnessed in the scripture were to accompany the true apostles at the first pronouncements of the gospel. Um, in other words, when this happened, it thereby confirmed their message and made their apostleship uh, uh, a message, a uh, authoritative um, example uh, that we can use. You have two messengers who show up in town that are preaching different messages or a different gospel, and both claim to be apostles or sent from God. So which one do you believe? Well, the one whose message is also accompanied by these signs and wonders. Um, so an example, uh, we would uh, point, we would, people would point you to like Nicodemus to Jesus in John 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Um, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. In other words, he was able to recognize that Jesus is doing something that nobody else is able to do, and therefore there's something about him that they should be listening to. And so it was understood that you will always believe the messenger whose message was accompanied by these signs and wonders. So this position tends to believe miracles can and do still happen today, but they deny that there is to be a continuous gifting, which is all is the key difference. It's right. not, they would never tell you you're not going to see miracles. It's just you're not going to see some guy like Benny Hinn knocking people over with his Holy Spirit gun. Um, which and, and, and all of this continuous gifting that they say does not happen, is uh, it's not happening through the Holy Spirit. So when you say that that's what you see happening, they would say, no, that's not the Spirit at work. Right. That's why they would say also, at best, it's the result of peer pressure, being in a church or a tradition that practices this kind of thing. Or at worst, it could even be demonic. Um, that, that continuous gifting, yeah. as we like to call it, they would say is not a reality of the New Testament church age. Yeah. Post-apostolic. So why do we say Pentecostals and Charismatics? Um, where did any of this even come from <laughs> is the question. So there were various waves, uh, developments, and gradations in this movement. Um, so let us give you just a really quick history uh, you had what's known as first wave Pentecostalism. Uh, this was marked by something called the Azusa Street Revival. Which, Do you know who was the pastor? Um, Amy Semple McPherson, I believe. I did know that, yes. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. And my old boss at Grace Community Church used to play trumpet at her. Uh, no, really? At her church, yeah. Oh. yeah. Well. Um, Anyhow. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so Azusa Street Revival, um, it's something that swept through L.A. in 1906. Um, and when that happened, a very important theological, I would argue not good, but important theological development took place, something known as Pentecostal theology. And so, as we've already mentioned, it was here where baptism of the Spirit for the very first time was viewed to be a secondary or subsequent blessing and manifestation of the Spirit that was necessarily accompanied by speaking in tongues. Um, it was thought that the Holy Spirit pours out all his spiritual gifts in the church today. Um, now, this was a, a meeting here in 1906 that was visited by tens of thousands of people from all over the world. And so a result of that was just this rapid spread of its theology taking place. Um, and what's interesting is if you just do a quick cursory study even on contemporary world missions, uh, what it will reveal is that a vast majority of churches being planted today are actually done by Pentecostals. Um, I mean, huge amounts. Um, and so the result, and and I would even say phenomena of this 1906 meeting, were many Pentecostal churches and denominations all over the world. And we, we see this in our travels, oh. um, just how prominent Pentecostalism yeah. is, because it's just the, the spread was huge. And within the apostolic Pentecostal world, I mean— we're still talking large chunks here. You, you've got aberrant theologies right and left. I mean, they deny that's where the oneness theology of there's not a trinity, uh, T.D. Jakes, modalism, all that kind of garbage. So, right. But, yeah, they are extremely uh, aggressive, though, in their efforts. And so on one level, you can say, that's great. I just wish it was sound theology. All right, so the second way would be charismaticism. Um, in the 1960s, that theology started spreading and penetrating mainline churches and denominations. So this, and this is what happened in our uh, town. Uh, the Anglican, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Orthodox, it didn't really matter where they were. Uh, weird things started happening. So we had a church here that now has a few churches, uh, but it all started by a Catholic priest in, his, in the basement of the church, the Catholic church, doing a study. And then all of a sudden, he ended up started with tongue speaking. Next thing you know, they uh, all broke with the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church wouldn't let them continue to meet. But this was just another phenomena. Um, it was a penetrating, infiltrating, uh, or infiltration, really, of the existing mainline denominations. Uh, hot spots of the movement were in uh, Duquesne University, um, the, uh, the professor started, this is a Catholic one, and they started laying hands on each other. In Ann Arbor, Michigan, you had the Word of God, uh, which was an ecumenical missionary community. In South Bend, Indiana, you had the People of Praise, which was a non-denominational parachurch organization. And from there, it just spread uh, with great rapidity. Yeah. You want to do the third or yeah. you want me? And then in a third wave, evangelicalism is what it's re referred to, um, is that in the 1960s, a man by the name of John Wimber reads the book of Acts and begins to wonder why the church does not see or experience what he was reading. Um, this is very similar to what has recently happened actually to Francis Chan. Yeah, um, he, he wrote books called Power Evangelism and Power Healing and Power This and That. Everything was, it all has to be done with, demonstrations of power of the spirit. So 
we saw a lot of people defect and go over into that movement. Right. So, so John Wimber was, was an evangelical believing in the historic understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the classic view of that doctrine is what he did believe. But again, reading the book of Acts, he's wondering, okay, if this is a picture of what the church is to be, why are we not experiencing this today? Well, and then he allows experience to trump the scripture. Yeah. Because once things start happening, it has to be this. He, it, he couldn't contemplate that, could this be satanic in the sense of bringing some uh, error into the church? No, it couldn't be. It has to be, I have to accept that this experience is normative, it's good, it's right. But Yeah. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And then, so what he does is he then mixes Pentecostalism and non-Pentecostalism, and it becomes the fountainhead of what's known now as the third wave evangelicalism. So examples of people that you might know who hold to this or are part of this group would be guys like Sam Storms, uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, CJ Mahaney, and then of course the one we mentioned, John Wimber. And so now you have a mix, this is why you can have people who hold things like reform theology, and yet at the same time, yeah. And their experiences and practices appear very Pentecostal or charismatic. So what's been the result of this divide? Well, there's been positive and negative things. First, we would say the positive is that the doctrine of the Spirit has, as a result of all this, once again been elevated to its appropriate place among Christian doctrines. It was kind of just a forgotten doctrine uh, in many ways for hundreds of years. Uh, subsequently, a fuller understanding and worship of God has taken place. Um, because it's forced us to refine our thinking on the nature of the Spirit. Um, as you read church history, doctrine becomes clear, becomes more balanced and definitive, but only after a history of debate um, and even conflict has taken place. Um, and so all the great doctrines of the Christian faith that we that everyone just accepts now, well, those didn't just come up in Over a barbecue and the yeah. All, yeah, and they were all like, yeah, that's really cool. Let's let's codify that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so the end result is always um, a, f a fuller or pure worship of God by the church. What are some of the negative? All right, and there are some. Uh, there's the bad doctrine. <laughs> as simple <laughs> oh, as that. Right. that. It's also those movements are replete with it because they bring experience right. as a legitimate source of authority. Yeah, and truth even. Right. So the moment you do that, then everything I mean, it may not start bad, but now you got people, you know, dancing like chickens and barking like dogs and um, people actually are praising Jesus for this powerful outworking or the embarrassment of what Bethel Church in Reading is, you know, and the supposed gold dust and the angel feathers. And it's like, oh, come on, people, are you really that stupid? And what you end up concluding is, yeah, you, you really are. Um, heretical theology, therefore, comes a confusion and massive amounts of abuse also arise out of this indeed um you have greater hostile and hostility maybe a divisiveness has taken place among the true church ironically again it works against one of the great works of the spirit which is actually producing unity um friendships are lost over this yeah absolutely uh, um it's it's sad so 
bring us all together. That's our basic, and it's a very basic introduction to the uh, doctrine, what we're going to develop it, but we hope it's been helpful. Um, the big takeaway is to understand that serious discussions on the nature, person, and work of the Spirit has only arisen really in the last hundred years and truly within the last 50. And so while Pentecostalism is the most dominant position globally and is therefore often viewed as a true revival or work of God, it, it's to be... Uh, it's a true work of God, but really this is a doctrine that's been in the dark for like 1900 years. Yeah. Nobody really has developed in any substantive way. And so it's actually a rather new world. And again, we're gonna argue you gotta go back to scripture uh, to do it. Yeah. Uh, furthermore, the language of revival implies that there was once a strong commitment to something that had been clearly defined in practice. And so, again, this is a relatively recent phenomenon, and we plan to interact with it yeah. while we go along. Yeah, so, again, how can, you, how can you call it a revival if it already wasn't being held to definitively? And that, that's the issue. Um, this is new, new and unprecedented in many ways. So, having said that, we, we laid out our presupposition, which is that reform stance of sola scriptura. Um, so all the, these historical movements, these traditions, these experiences, so on and so forth, have, have little bearing on our approach. And so we are strictly interested in developing this doctrine from the authority of uh, what every true Christian has, which is the scriptures alone. And so with that, next time our plan is to just jump right in and we'll begin by talking about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but until then, make sure to tune in, join this conversation. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the Holy Spirit. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on social media and tell a friend. Mm -hmm.